What's it like when one of your friends on death row is led away to be executed? You have a prepaid call from William A. Aguirre. An inmate at the California State Prison, San Quentin. This call and your telephone number will be monitored and recorded. I had to be a different complete guy, which is the guy who walked the walkways of San Quentin's death row and without a gang, without a, a group of people around me, it was just me. Soon after you went into to be on death row, and you didn't really understand the prison workout system so much. But then he said, we're going to do 75 sets of it. To me, that seems extreme. So I'm wondering if there's a danger of overtraining, wearing yourself out so that you're... <laughs> no, no, that's actually funny. That's, and it's funny, and I'll tell you why. That's a good one, man. Uh, I'll tell you why. Welcome to Death Row Diaries. I am Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagara. And we have a really good, interesting case for you guys. And this is unsolved, but, well, I don't want to bury the lead, but, Bill, I think you might have solved it. Yeah, it's an interesting case. <laughs> it's being smells cover up from the very beginning but I read this case some time ago with a lot of interest because you know everybody keeps saying that the kitty murders the kitty cabin murders they're unsolved it's been so long no one knows who did it and I read the case with a complete unbiased eye and by the end of the, end of the case or end of reading the entire file on this thing it's obvious to me who the culprit of the crimes are and who murdered uh, the four people that were murdered because this is a quadruple murder yeah of children and we'll get into it I want to remind everyone to follow us on Instagram and Facebook and especially check out our Patreon page that is patreon.com slash Diaries, where you will get four bonus episodes a month <clears throat> and if you subscribe now as a Patreon member for a limited time, we will promise to do a case that you request. We'll promise to do an episode on a case that you request, so long as Bill's able to talk about it, because uh, some of the stuff he can't talk about for liability reasons and things like that. Anyway, <clears throat> do we want to get into it, Bill? I guess you had a rough uh, week last week. Your your cell got tossed. What happened? I don't know what happened really just a, it was actually on um, Sunday evening I was in my cell with now at Corker prison I have a celly which is another person who lives with me and you know four cops show up to my door and they basically said we just step out they frisked us they walked us downstairs put us in a cage strip searched us and then went into my cell and tore my cell apart and um, or our cell apart you know, they, they, they got out about 45 minutes later. They didn't find anything. So, at least from my part, there wasn't anything to find. But the, the staff members made it very clear to me that this had nothing to do with me, that they were, in fact, investigating something that happened with my cellie, the guy that lives with me. So, you know, of course, he apologized. He said, listen, I'm really sorry about this, you know. But... Whatever the reason is that they were looking at him, they said it was directly at him. In this situation, I'm affected because I live in that cell. And 
know, they find something, obviously, if they find it in his area, he'll be, you know, charged or booked by it. But, you know, when it comes to these kind of situations, it kind of stresses you out because you're always wondering what another clown's doing. At death row, it was just me and the cell, so I knew that anything in there was mine. And I knew that there wasn't anything of contraband in my cell. So, you know, it took another two hours to fix the cell back up and put everything back together. But it was, it was a stressful time. I don't like to be searched because, I mean, I don't do anything. And um, so, yeah, that was my, uh, my ex- uh, exciting weekend. Yeah, so how would that work if they search a cell and there's two people in the cell and they find some serious contraband? And both people deny it. Yeah, then if they both people deny it, then you're uh, you're screwed. They're going to charge the both of you. But usually, with when you have a seller, you have an understanding. And I make it very clear when I stepped into that cell, I made it extremely clear to this guy when I moved in. Listen, I just came off death row. I don't want any, um, you know, misunderstandings. If you're doing something, or if you have contraband. You have to let me know because if you have it in an area, it's a common area in the cell and they book both of us because of your stupidity, we're going to have a problem. So there's always that common respect among convicts when you tell each other, hey, look, I have, a, you know, whatever. And if the other one knows it and still comfortable, then that's fine. But it is our job to tell each other what's going on. So something like this does happen. But the rule is if they find something and obviously it's his, he has to step forward and say, look, that's mine or whatever. But that doesn't always work that way. Sometimes the person searching the cells, I don't care. It was in the cell, you're in there, you're screwed. So yeah, that is obviously something that I worry about because you can only trust the guys for what he says and he could be lying. There could be something in there. Um, it's not like a single man cell like I was on death row where I searched the cell myself and I knew what was there. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it, but that does seem kind of stressful. It'd be like if you were in a car riding with a bunch of people in a car and one of them had drugs or a gun or something and you get pulled over, you know, you're in that car and that happens to people all the time. Exactly. No, that's exactly what I'm talking about. So, I, you know, if, I, if someone's getting in my car... And, and or you, you you're getting in the right car, man. We're going somewhere, and I'm gonna, you know, it's my job to say, hey, man, listen, man, I got a shotgun in the back, or I got a freaking a pound of a freaking uranium in the back. So in case we get pulled over, the KGB, you know, is gonna blame you. They're gonna blame me because it's mine or whatever. But yeah, it's just it does. It's not. That's what I don't like about this kind of living when you're in a cell with somebody else. But you know, it's a level two. It is what it is, and I gotta put up with it. But it's nothing I'm happy with. And it's one of the reasons that I will be moving from that cell to the guy who I work out with because he's a lot straighter. He's he's not involved in anything, doesn't use drugs, doesn't get involved in gangs or anything. He's just a, a beast when it comes to working out, and that's why we have a common interest, and that's it. Yeah. Well, that's good. I'm glad that you know, it wasn't that serious. But you sounded kind of stressed out when I last talked to you, so... <laughs> Yeah, I was pissed. I was more upset than anything else. I don't really get stressed. I just get pissed. Yeah. Yeah. So the Ketty murders, the Ketty Camp murders. Background here, a woman named Susan Sharp. She's fleeing a bad situation on the East Coast. She moves to 
this uh, kind of abandoned little, uh, I, don't, I don't know what you'd call it, little vacation camp where they have these little cabins and she takes her four kids with her. And, you know, this is in the middle of nowhere. It's like two hours from Reno in the Sierra Nevada mountains. This is the early 80s. And, uh, you know, unfortunately, everyone gets killed. Well, not everybody, but yeah, four people get murdered. You know, it's funny because when you start talking about, you're talking about like a little place, vacation spot, resort. You know, the first thing that popped in my mind when I started reading this case was Friday the 13th. And you have all these little cabins. They're not too far from each other. They're not luxurious places. It's just these small little resort cabins where you spend the night or a couple nights or whatever. Obviously, she was living there with her kids, but man, I just... I had flashbacks of Friday the 13th and all this other stuff. Yeah, yeah, it sounds a little creepy, you know, being in the woods up there at night and in that area where there's all these drugs coming through and just weird, creepy mountain people and transients. And uh, But yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a grim scene. You know, these used to be rented out for a couple nights and then, you know, the camp kind of... I don't know, fell into disrepair or, or didn't succeed. And so now people are renting out these little, just these little shacks to live in. And that's, uh, it's not a great situation. No, it's not. And I mean, when I, like I said, when I read this case, I looked at the photographs. At first I was, because, you know, the cabin's a little bit separate. It's cabin 28. It's a little bit separate from the other cabins in a row. And I just kept thinking about this, that, you know, we had been a, done a case about a resort similar to this. Um, it was a guy that Ed Kemper was familiar with. And this, you know, there was a question as whether this guy was a serial killer or not. And he killed a bunch of people, you know, but he was doing so because he thought it would it stop the end of the world from coming. Remember that guy? And, um, you know... He went to a cabin resort. He kind of went to the, shot the person there and then walked to the back and shot. It just kind of reminded me of the same thing when I first read this case. And I'm thinking, okay, serial killer. This is the first thing that popped in my mind. You know, the cabin is isolated from the other ones. Um, it's, a, it's a woman and her kids there. Perfect place for someone driving by who had seen this place, saw the opportunity, stalked it, and then went in and did what he did. But the more I read this case, the more I saw the details, the more I saw cover-up, the more I saw conspiracy, the more I thought of someone familiar with the family rather than a random killer. Yeah, yeah. So there were some suspects we'll get into, but there was just a lot about the investigation. It just didn't add up at all. And... uh and we'll get into it. So let's start with the events of that that um, that day, that evening in 1981. Okay. Yeah. So you know, to to really um, look at this case for how it is and how it was going down is let's look at what really happened. So on um, April the twelfth. And this is 1981 at cabin 28 of the Kitty Resort or Katie Resorts. 
um, a 14-year-old child, daughter of Sue, her name is Shelly, returns home from spending a night at her friend's house at 7 a.m. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so, um, you know, her, her young daughter, Shelly, returns home and finds in the living room area her mother, Sue, and John Sharp, her brother, along with his friend, Dana. And they're bound with medical tape, electrical cords, um, and his, her younger sister, Tina Sharp, is missing from the scene. So you have three people dead off the top, the mother, the son, and his girlfriend. In the next room, which is just, I mean, we're talking about one door away from the scene. There are three children that are found unharmed. Rick and Greg Sharp, who are uh, Sue's, the victim's youngest children. They're both ages 10 and five. And their friend, Justin Smart, is also found in the room with them. Now, I want you to bear in mind that name, Justin Smart, because this plays a larger role in this mystery than at first glance, you know, appears, or what appears at first glance. So that's a pretty gruesome scene. You have three people murdered, and they are butchered. This isn't just a shot with a, with a, with a gun, or these are very violent crimes. So let's talk about who is there, how, what kind of state they're in, what their bodies look like, so you have a good idea. So it's the living room, and the first person that you see is Sue, and she's found lying on her side near the living room sofa. She's nude from the waist down. She's gagged with a blue bandana, and her underwear are taped into her mouth. She is stabbed in the chest. She is stabbed in the throat. And the the stab wounds are so deep, they pass through her larynx and nick her spinal cord. There is a imprint of the butt of a Daisy 880 BB gun pellet rifle on the side of her face, okay? Now, John, her son, who is a little bit away from his throat is slashed, not stabbed, it is slashed. And there is a great deal of, uh, deal of blunt force trauma to his head with a hammer. This was done with a hammer. His girlfriend or friend, Dana, um, her injuries are also similar. Blunt force trauma to the head with a hammer, and then she's later strangled. The child that is missing is Tina Sharp, but from the scene are missing her jacket, her shoes, and it looks like someone at first, no one knows what's going on, but once they realize she's gone and you know these items are gone, shoes and a jacket, it looks like a kidnapping. So there's a lot of things going on here, Matt, that made me think, okay, kidnapping. They, they came, 
Somebody came with sex in the mind, but they took the child because that was their main, uh, the person they wanted. They took her jacket, took her shoes. They wanted her to be comfortable. That's why they took the shoes and the jacket. But we later find out a little bit different. So, so far, what do you think? I mean, look at this crime scene. Pretty gruesome, uh, very aggressive. What do you think? So, yeah, the teenage girl is missing and probably the most likely kind of, you know, sex slave type of, you know, the, the most likely uh, prize of, of someone who's in this kind of, has this kind of hobby, these kind of desires. Um, it would have to be... I don't know. See, I mean, you're in this camp. This is basically like this mom is living in a weekly motel rental, right? With It's just like, just seedy characters probably all over the place. You know, people staying for a week or two at a time or a month at a time. So it could be someone that just saw them, you know, took a liking to the girl or... Um, saw the kids and thought they looked like they were worth killing but it could also very likely be someone that the family knows personally right right so that's what I was thinking you know killer serial killer or killers saw the resort except for Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Easy to make an entry, woman, children, young boy, you know, you know, teenager really. And I thought, great, this is obviously that's what it is. But I noticed that there's no forced entry. The house phone is off the hook. The cord is cut from the outlets and the drapes are closed. Now, the drapes being closed could be that, look, it was evening when this happened. They were already closed to begin with. So that had no bearing on what happened. Now, the interesting thing in this thing is that when they interviewed the kids, one second, um, let me turn this thing. Hold on a minute. Edit this out. So they interviewed the three boys because the younger sister came to the home, saw what happened. She runs next door, brings the neighbor over. They understand that the parents are dead, so they go to the side of the house, they open the window, and they pull the kids, the 10-year-old, the 5-year-old, and Justin um, Smart out of the window to get them away from the house. They don't know if the killers are in there. They don't know. So, of course, they call the cops. It's discovered these people are dead, and we have three possible witnesses. The fourth is, of course, the teenage girl who just came over from being next door, but she hasn't seen anything. They ask her about the night before, was anybody there? Nothing to the event. She doesn't know anything. The three boys are very interesting. The two young boys, the sharp boys, which are uh, 
Rick and Greg, they basically slept through the whole thing. They saw nothing. They heard nothing. However, Justin Smart is interviewed. He gives kind of a way out story about what he saw. At first, he said, I saw nobody. But then the story begins to change. He says he saw two men, and he gives a description. They bring in sketch artists. And by the way, it wasn't a police sketch artist. It was just a sketch artist that he just brought him in. And he had or no prior uh, expertise in homicide or as a sketch artist. And that's a problem for me. I, right away, I'm wondering what's going on. Of course, the police in this town are incompetent. They have no idea what to do. They interview these kids. These kids are um, obviously confused. They're scared. But law enforcement doesn't bring anybody to calm them down, to interview them correctly. None of these things are done. The crime scene is trampled over. Uh, A lot of people are in the house. They walk out. They just, from the very get-go, they made huge mistakes. Now, you know, I always give law enforcement the... Uh, you know, the, 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 the kudos if they do things right. Of course, this is a 1981, uh, you know, the forensic uh, uh, evidence gathering techniques are, are in their infancy. But they just make huge mistakes throughout this entire investigation. It starts off bad. The sheriff that's in charge is basically a freaking moron, an idiot. And he starts the investigation by really covering things up from the very beginning. So, look, this thing here is, um, it's just a bad thing. It's bad from the very beginning. And we'll have to go into the details of how the police made a mistake. But one thing, one thing I'm going to say from the very get-go is that this is a homicide. It's obvious to everybody there. But guess who shows up minutes after the crimes are reported? Yeah, that's what I said. I had to do a double take. This is a homicide. Homicide detectives from this town or the big town right next to it should be there. That's not who shows up. The FBI's organized crime guys, they're the ones that show up. So think about that you have organized crimes top two dogs are at a crime scene like this and immediately that drew my attention which was very interesting to me why would organized crime crime unit be at a crime scene that has nothing to do with organized crime right that is very strange and immediately feds showing up in the first place is really weird but that's even weirder. It's very weird. The, and to me, it, it, it just drew my attention. It didn't give me any conclusions. I just thought, like, what? Is it possible that it went over the airways, these guys in the vicinity, you know, that is methamphetamine country up there. Maybe there's hell's angels up there or something, and maybe they heard the call and they show up. That's what I'm thinking at first. But the more I look into it, Matt, 
the more I thought they were involved with the case, they were investigating the case. There is no reason on earth why organized crime FBI agents should be investigating a normal homicide. No, no. Um, and this, uh, hmm, this doesn't really reek of organized crime. I mean, this is a poor single mother. Um, I mean, if we're talking about real, you know, mafia type people and organized crime, you know, they're not killing children for the most part. Um, so what, what, what do you think the significance? So the mom is kind of like sexually posed or whatever. She's got underwear stuffed into her throat. She's stabbed really badly in the uh, neck, like you said. Another victim, John, has his throat slashed. But then yet another one, Dana, is strangled. So why the different... Uh, methods there well I, as I said I think that this was not a serial killer the, the person was let in the house and, and and to me for this scene to happen it needed two people not one you have three children asleep in a room right next door. I mean, this is one small door. This, this is not especially insulated, a mansion. This is a, a rickety cabin. And you have the mother's attacked viciously. She's cut, she's hit with a rifle. It's hard to have all these things in your hand. One guy didn't have a rifle, a BB rifle, a knife, a hammer, all these things. I believe two people came into the house and there was an argument. Once the argument got out of hand, there was... You have 60 seconds remaining. Yeah, so as I said, I, I think that this had to do with a personal situation. And it's, it, it involves more than just the victims. There are um, other people involved that require this case to be looked at a lot more carefully. And I, like I said, I think this, there's a huge cover from the very beginning. Uh, and there are two different mindsets working in this case. There is the mindset of the sheriff who is in charge of the crime scene. And there is also the mindset of the FBI who are there also as a cover-up. I know that's gonna say, well, what the hell are you talking about, Bill? Well. You know, this investigation leads to a lot of things. First, they're looking for a child, a very small girl. Uh, she's only 12 years old. Her name is Tina Sharp. She's the one that's missing from the crime scene. She's not there. And they don't find anybody. They're investigating the case. Um, and they're looking for suspects. The sheriff, I said, had his reasons for covering things up. And that is that he would, I believe, had a personal relationship with who I believe is the killer and his partner. Now, I won't tell you at this moment who it is, because I really want to set this up, that the audience understand what's going on here. Now, the murderer, the murderer or murderers, 
one of them is there just to support the first one, who is the one that has a personal relationship with the mother, Sue. His partner, the reason that the FBI there is because they're looking at him. He is an asset to the FBI's organized crime unit. And that's why they're there. I'll give you guys that much thus far. I won't tell you much more because there's a lot going on here that I want to touch upon. So so an asset meaning an informant. Well, Someone that's working a pretty with. good guess, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's a very good idea. So, you know, of course, I'm looking at this thing, well, both you and I, Matt, are looking at this thing, you know, 40 years in the future. So we're looking back to all the notes and everything going on. But a lot of the evidence that was collected was destroyed or hidden. No one had the evidence. It disappeared in the custody of the sheriff. So the woman, Sue, had a guy she was involved with, okay? And and this guy named Martin, there was problems there. He was married to a woman by the name of Marilyn. And Marilyn had confided in Sue Sharp, the woman that was dead, about the abuse that she was enduring at the hands of this guy named Martin, okay? When Martin learned that his wife, Marilyn, had confided in Sue Sharp and told her what was going on, he got very upset, extremely upset. There is also evidence that leads me to believe that Martin was actually having an affair with Sue Sharp. So when his wife, Marilyn, tells Sue Sharp that he's abusing her, Sue tries to end the relationship with Martin. And that's why he's there that night. He goes there that night to confront Sue. Is this, are you kind of following where I'm going with this? Yeah, he doesn't want to break it off. Yeah, but that same night of the murders, Martin and this guy named, and I'm going to jack up his name, uh, Bobby, Bodie? I think it's uh, Boubade. Okay. This guy is, he and Martin are asking that Marilyn, Martin's wife, invite Sue Sharp, the, the murder victim, out for drinks. You know, as a companion for this booby clown, okay? We just call him booby because I'm horrible with names. So, Marilyn then reports that Sue's not a drinker and that then she told the men, well, she's not going to be joining us. So, very interesting, right after the murders, Martin left Kitty altogether and he wrote his wife, Marilyn, the girl, the woman that told Sue about the abuse she and this is what he said to her in a letter. I've paid the price of your love and now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we're through. So that tells me, obviously, and we know that Marilyn broke it off with this guy, Martin. 
but he writes her that letter. And listen to those words, Matt. I mean, it's pretty obvious what he's talking about. I've paid the price of your love, and now that I've bought it with four people's lives, you tell me we are through. I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? Well, yeah, I mean, four people have just died, and but this letter is a uh, it's it's not it's it's ignored isn't it yeah it's stuck in a file and no one sees it and then martin's counselor because he's got mental issues yet he was that's how you met this guy booby at a, a veteran at a veteran's deal for ptsd his counselor tells cops martin admitted murdering sue and tina she said Tina had witnessed the event, but he also claimed to the counselor that he, he did not kill the boys. Now, this evidence is all available to police and law enforcement and the FBI at this time. It is ignored. Now, tell me, there is no way that, that Plumas County Sheriff Sylvester Thomas could have ignored this. And, you know, he did it. He did state that hey martin would you know supply in this clues and thomas threw suspicion away from him because they had a personal relationship these guys are buddies this is why thomas sylvester thomas the sheriff really pushed this case away from martin so that he wouldn't be arrested martin leaves obviously so so here is how this thing plays a bit out for me. Now, Martin and Booby, they met at a VA mental hospital where they both are suffering from PTSD from a Vietnam experience. Now, Martin is, is described as a dangerous individual. And he had all kinds of crazy things he said about the Bible and about the coming of, of death and doom and all this other stuff. And he was all, all, often preaching to people about the impure thoughts that he had. Now, this right here is a very unstable individual, explosive, a guy that has an axe to grind with Sue. There may have been an affair going, but the bottom line is she knew that he was in, uh, abusing Marilyn. I believe that this came down to a very simple situation that he went there to confront her. And why I believe that the affair did take place, it's written in several notes that there, there seems to be a relationship going on between Sue and this guy, Martin. And she didn't want to see him anymore. So now this guy is being rejected by Marilyn, his wife, and now Sue who is his lover? And that is a cocktail for for explosive behavior, if I've ever heard one. Right. Plus, the night of the uh, incident, him and his buddy uh, Booby had been out drinking. So now you're throwing alcohol into the mix with, uh, you know, a guy with PTSD and all kinds of rage issues. Yeah, this, this, I mean, to me, and how the police did not figure this out, it, it really is, um, it, it makes absolutely 
no sense whatsoever unless someone has told these people back off okay so but we gotta we gotta remember now that tina is still missing right she's not accounted for tina is still missing and this is um a problem you know time is passing you know weeks months are passing after the murders and they have not found Tina. Um, so a year later, and uh, you know, this is uh, unfortunate, but a guy who was, um, I think it's actually three years later that a guy is walking and he discovers a human skull in Butte County, about 30 miles from Kitty, where the resort is at. And near the remains, they find a child's blanket, a blue nylon jacket, and a pair of jeans with a missing back pocket and an empty surgical tape dispenser. That right there really looks suspicious, so they run, um, DNA and discover that that is actually the young girl Tina um, Sharp has been found and so now this turns into a quadruple murder you have the mother Sue her son John his friend Dana and now his little sister Tina all murdered um, from, from what I can say, there's only one reason they would have taken that child. And that is because Booby, not Martin, in my opinion, was interested in the child. It was pre-adolescence, pre-teen child, and that's why he took her. Because he had a sexual appetite for children yeah and so we don't know how long she was alive but they went back and forth um something like six months i guess yeah i mean this is um it's a tragedy but in the same token to me it really is pretty obvious what happened here and, you know, we've given a lot. We've given basically who the guys are, who I believe killed um, this family. And, you know, honestly, I think that, in my opinion, this case, and this is one of the reasons that law enforcement and the FBI and a number of different organizations that have other interests when involved with the case, it kind of it, it really taints what's going on the FBI obviously has more clout than a regular sheriff they can pressure the, their local law enforcement to stand down because they have a better interest or, or a, a larger interest or a more important interest in a case and I think that's exactly what happened here and, and that's problem when you have like snitches you have people who commit crimes and law enforcement they're willing to turn a blind eye 
to make sure that they um, get the person they want, but they sacrifice the other cases that are happening. So, all right, maybe I'm I'm not getting what you're putting down exactly. So smart and boob, booby are these kind of bumpkin, small time guys, probably, I think they're, they're probably um, small time criminals. Uh, they are. You have the, you have Sue, maybe was dabbling in prostitution. I don't know, I, I don't, that's the rumor. Um, you have a teenage girl missing. But none of this seems to be the type of thing that would be on the radar of the FBI, and yet they are there automatically with the, you know, people from the Justice Department with organized crime specialties, not, not murder, <laughs> not murder people, but racketeering people. So, yes, organized crime, people that get involved in the mob, people who handle, this is the key word, handle ex-mobsters, mobsters turned informants, CIs, which are confidential informants. That's exactly what we're looking at here. Why would they be involved in a case that has nothing to do with organized crime? You have two guys who are perfect suspects, but it's all all hands off of these guys. There's a reason for that. And I, I think we'll go into that next time, um, our next episode, which I will bring the details as to who the killers are, why they killed her, why there was a cover-up, and how the Chicago mob is involved in this situation. Okay, yeah, because right now, I mean, these are these are poor people. These are not people high up on the ladder and their children, which had nothing to do with anything. So I'm not getting it just yet, but that's okay. You'll explain it next time. Until then, I've been Matt Ralston. And I'm William Nagara. Be safe. Be aware of your surroundings. Your life can depend on it. We'll see you next time.